Uh, lastly, we are hurtling towards the Christmas season, which is good news for some of us. Um, and so for those of you who are uh, scheduling people or um, you like having your itineraries and your ducks in a row, um, a couple notes. Know that on uh, Sunday, December 23rd, uh, we're just going to have a normal uh, Sunday morning reunion here at 1030. And then on Monday, December 24th, uh, we're having our Christmas Eve service together at uh, Crestwick Baptist Church at 6 p.m. So Sunday, December 23rd, normal reunion here. December 24th is our Christmas Eve service at Crestwick Baptist Church. Uh, and I would say this. Biblically, Christmas is filled with instances of God taking notice of people who are overlooked and inviting them in and calling them in to places that he's prepared for him in his story and in his kingdom. Um, so if we are to celebrate Christmas well as a church family together, the same will be true in our neighborhoods. We will find, take notice of, track down people who are overlooked in our neighborhoods and invite them in, call them into our church family and introduce them to the story of the gospel. Um, so yeah, don't come alone to that Christmas Eve service. Uh, we're going to have a lot of space. Uh, there's going to be some snacks and treats after the service. There's going to be childcare for any kids under the age of four. Um, so Find, take notice of, pray about um, people in your neighborhood that are overlooked that you can invite into that. Um, uh, Because it is a a service that's a little bit outside of a normal Sunday rhythm, there's still a couple uh, volunteering needs that we have for that service. Uh, So if you're available and willing to help that evening, uh, just let James Bass know, um, just so we have the right people in place for that. Um, I think that's it. City kids, you guys are free to go, and I'll invite up Naomi Law to read our scripture. Well, this morning we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. So if you um, have your Bibles with you, awesome, open up to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible this morning or if you want one, you don't have one, please raise your hand and we will gladly give you one. And this can be our gift to you. You can, you can take it home as a gift, so no need to give it back. We're going to be reading about the birth of Jesus Christ this morning according to Matthew We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey, it is good to be gathered together today, second Sunday of December. 
Um, I am excited, certainly, to be with you all. Before we get going, uh, why don't we take a moment to pause and to reflect. Now, some of you, you've been around, and so you're like, okay, I totally get this thing. It's the, probably the weirdest thing Matt instructs us to do. But here's the thing. I'm learning a lot about the physical body through my time in therapy. And what we don't necessarily understand is that before you can actually engage with your mind, your body, literally your physical body needs to slow down. Because many of us have been going, 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 and going. The way the physical body actually works, the way, the way that when you take in your senses, when your senses take in something, what happens is that before all of those things that come in get to your frontal cortex for you to start rationalizing what's going on, it reaches your amygdala, which then targets your vagus nerve and your autotomic nervous system, which is a nervous system that runs completely through your entire body. It's fascinating. So some of you are like, what is going on right now? What I'm telling you is that we as human beings do not respect our physical bodies. And in the Christian church, we certainly do not respect our physical bodies. And culture tells us that our bodies are slaves, that are simply slaves to our minds. But we need to understand that Jesus, God himself, created us having physical bodies. He cares about your body. He wants you to care about your body. And then in the incarnation, what does Jesus put on? A physical body. And so when I ask us to pause and consider how we're feeling to slow down our breathing, what I'm simply asking you is to give yourself a pause to reflect and appreciate what God has given you in your body and then to begin to reflect so that you can actually begin to think about what I'm going to share with you today. So let's stop, consider how you're feeling, and then we'll jump in. Let's go. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you love us. You just don't love our minds. You love all of us. You died to save all of us. And one day we will get resurrected bodies. That will be good. And so today we acknowledge you. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done, which means we have a new identity and we have a new hope and a way to live. So I just thank you for that. And I pray, God, you would soften our hearts today, break our hearts today for the things that break your heart and that we would come in line with what you're trying to do in and through our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I want to get a little bit of feedback as we begin this morning by asking the question, what is submission? What is submission? I'd love to hear some answers. What is submission? Anybody? What's that? Giving in to? Okay, yeah, that's maybe one way. Other things. What is submission? Yes. To surrender under someone else's mission or another vision? Yes. Yielding to someone else's will. Okay, we'll stop there. Here's the dictionary definition of submission, okay? It's the action of accepting or yielding, hence the word, you got it there, to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. Okay, it's accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will of authority of another person. Now, second question, do we as our culture like the idea of submission? No! 
We despise it. We hate submission, bringing my life under the authority, yielding my will, my desires to the will of another. Why would I do that? Uh, Here locally in Guelph, uh, you're maybe familiar if you own a home, uh, there were a number of bylaws that prevented homeowners from widening their driveway. When Andre and I owned our first house, we were interested in putting an income property in our basement. And so I went to the city of Guelph. I had my plans in hand. I went to the planning department to apply for my permit so that I could do construction in my basement. And uh, the, the fellow that came and met me, he took my papers and went and started doing some research into where I lived. And he came back and he said to me, excuse me, sir, where are you planning on having your tenant park? And I said, well, my plan was to actually widen my driveway and have them park right in, right there. Well, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot give you a permit then because your driveway then will be too large and so uh, your house is only allowed to have one parking spot. I left quite upset. Why? This is my property. I can do what I want with my property. I don't want to have to submit or yield or accept your will, what you want for me. Uh, This week I was listening to CBC News and uh, they were interviewing uh, an individual as part of the LGBTQ plus community in Toronto. And recently this week there was a number of things going on between uh, Pride Toronto around the the Toronto Pride Parade. Um, The executives of Pride Toronto were uh, apparently, according to the person being interviewed, uh, being friendly with the Toronto police. And so the person that was being interviewed was part of the, the Pride community and was quite upset that the Pride executives would align themselves with the police. And so they said, we are going to probably have to start a new Pride Toronto, uh, which will have no influence at all by the police and go our own direction. And so it was just interesting, right? You're listening to this. You're like, okay, so there's a group they want to submit to them. But then we talk about other submission, like in relationships. A few weeks ago, Cam, one of our elders who was up, just up here, talked about submission in relationships. And then we talk about submission as it relates to church communities of submitting to leadership and ultimately bringing our lives under the submission of God and his authority. But a lot of us, when we hear the word submission, we coil. Now, As much as the idea of submission is one that we don't like to talk about, here's what I'm going to say, okay? And here's my big idea as we start this morning, is that everybody lives in submission to someone or something. Now, here's what I mean by that. If everyone lives in submission to someone or something, my assumption and my belief is that you are likely living in submission to yourself. And when you as being the person that you're living in submission to to yourself, how you feel, what you want to do. When anyone else prevents that freedom, you get upset. How dare they get in my way? And so you don't like submission, but what you fail to realize is that all of us that are living in submission to someone or to something, and for many of us, the thing that we're living in submission to is not someone else, but it's to ourselves. Whatever I want, I want to get. In their fantastic podcast, This Cultural Moment, I cannot recommend it enough. It is incredible. They recently had an episode called True Individuality is Dying to Self. And in this podcast, two pastors, one's name is John Mark Comer from Portland, Oregon, and Mark Sayers from Melbourne, Australia. His church is called Red Church. 
talked about a couple of different things. And one of the things they talked about is that every human being requires three things in order for them to live a life of, of value or a life of fulfillment. And they talk about these three things as if they're reservoirs of your life. So you think of a reservoir of being something that fills with water. And so here's a, an example. I put it together thinking of it this way. There's three reservoirs that you have in your life. One of the reservoirs is your own personal freedoms. Uh, this is your desire to have uh, things, to make your own decision about a number of things. The second reservoir is meaning, uh, finding a certain meaning in life. And then the third reservoir is community or presence with people. Now, what they suggest is that if you want to have uh, freedom in your life, you're going to, if you want to highlight freedom above all other things, that's going to take away an aspect of meaning from your life. And so, for example, this is what many of us are probably experiencing and what they suggest our culture is actually experiencing. They say this, the freedom reservoir is overflowing, but the meaning reservoir is bone dry. And what they mean to say, and I'll illustrate this and you think about a marriage, you decide to get married, you are going to be limiting your own freedoms, right? You no longer live under, well, this is what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. You're now living in submission, but as a result, your life can bring about incredible meaning and can also bring about incredible presence, and so what they suggest is that we need a worldview, we need a way of seeing all of life and seeing it in a fulfilling way by having each of these reservoirs essentially at the same place because what they'll do is take away from each other if they're not in level footing or level ground. And the culture in which we live today, as they highlight, is idolizing that of personal freedom, but as a result, people are living without any sense or knowledge of any meaning in life. And many of us can probably express this from people that we are talking to, that they lack meaning while they highlight their own personal freedoms. So once again, my big idea is this, is that everyone lives in submission to someone or to something. It's not if, but who are we submitting to? And the scriptures introduce for us a worldview that brings all three of these things, freedom, meaning, and presence or community, into the picture providing a fulfilling and meaningful life. And for a picture of that today, let's look at Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, which is read for us. Now, as I said last week, for many in this room, the Christmas story is a familiar one, right? We've, we've heard it before. It's like, okay, just get beyond the story. I know for our family, as I've mentioned before, we read the Christmas story on Christmas morning before we open our presents. Sometimes that's a, just a, well, you know, we're good Christians because we read the story. But what can happen is that when something becomes familiar is we grow apathetic towards it. And so my heart this Christmas in this season of Advent for our church family is that we would take a look at this story and recognize the incredible thing that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so that for us in this Advent season, we would be able to find the true meaning of who God is and what he is showing us and what he did which leads to a changed identity for you and for me. So Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Naomi read it for us, and what we're going to do, as we usually do, is go through line by line. I'll summarize at the end. We'll have some application, and we'll hopefully be able to go home with the new, new challenges, being reminded of the good news of Christ and why he came. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
Now, verse 18 is not the first verse of Matthew. Uh, It is the 18th verse of Matthew. And so here in the 18th verse of Matthew, Matthew is picking up on what he has just uh, listed for us. Now, many of us, if we're honest about Matthew, as we are in many of the scriptures, anytime we see genealogies, we're like, what am I going to do with that? And we skip it, right? And we go down. But here's what Matthew wants us to understand. He's picking up here, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's built out Jesus' genealogy, where it started, where it ends. And then now he's focusing in and saying, this is how Jesus Christ was born. His birth took place in this way. As I reminded us last week, this is a historical event. You can't avoid that fact. This is not just some fictitious story. This is a historical event that the gospel writers actually believe happened. And so he's picking up and saying, okay, this Jesus, the genealogy that I've just listed, this is Jesus, and his birth took place in exactly this way. He goes on. When his mother, Mary... Now, once again, we'll pick up where we were last week. His mother, Mary. Notice the relational connection. When his mother, Mary, Jesus here is being connected to his mother, Mary. As we discussed, Mary was likely between 13 and 15 years old. We learned last week that, as it tells us here, that she had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal was a legal binding commitment and contract. It was between that of an engagement and a marriage. And the only way to get out of betrothal was through, uh, was through divorce. And so the connection of Mary and Joseph here is an important one to recognize. She had been betrothed to Joseph. And before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. We can't be sure if Joseph is aware of the fact that the baby is from the Holy Spirit. This might be the detail that Matthew provides for us. What we can know is that Joseph is now aware that the woman that he is betrothed to, the woman that he is going to marry, no pun intended, is in fact pregnant. Now, this can be uh, a detail that that we slightly glaze over. But I want you to stop for a second and think about this. You're engaged to somebody. You find out that they're pregnant. Uh, how would you be feeling? Now, culturally speaking, Joseph, within this culture, either one of two things has happened, right? You think about the practicalities of it. Either Mary has been unfaithful, so she's been in a relationship with another man, right? Which, uh, according to the Torah and Jewish law, uh, she has committed adultery and the punishment could be stoning. It was, it was serious. But it also shows of Joseph in thinking about his own, what he's wrestling with, is the fact that he could not uh, control or that he is seen potentially as a weak man because the woman that he's betrothed to doesn't want to be maybe in relationship with him, intentionally pursuing a marriage. Second reality could be that Joseph himself Um, actually had inappropriate sexual relationships with the woman that he's betrothed to, that they're not married yet. And so he is the one that that made her pregnant, which again would lead to significant cultural realities, ostracization from family, from friends. He would then also be seen as a weak man who was unable to control his own desires. And so Joseph here is in a difficult situation. 
He has a vision for his future. Right? He has a vision of here is this young woman that I am in love with. Joseph is likely between 15 and 17 years old. So if you're a young man here today between 15 and 17, as I mentioned about Mary, 13 to 15 years old, God wants to use you. Okay, just hear that. He wants to use you. He's not waiting until you're 21. He wants to use you where you are. But here is Joseph. And of course, Joseph then is dealing with his own, you know, the lies that are coming up for him of, you know, Mary's told me that she's pregnant. What do you do with that? She tells me not to worry about it. Uh, how am I not supposed to worry about this? Right, we're being introduced to the situation. The Killers, uh, some of us are aware of the, the band The Killers. They wrote a song called Joseph, Better You Than Me. Here are some of the lyrics to that song. Well, your eyes just haven't been the same, Joseph. Are you bad at dealing with the fame, Joseph? There's a pale moonshine above you. Do you see both sides? Do they shove you around? Is the touchstone forcing you to hide, Joseph? Are the rumors eating you alive, Joseph? When the holy night is upon you, will you do what's right? The position is yours. From the temple walls to the New York nights, our decisions rest on a child. When she took her stand, did she hold your hand? Will your faith stand still or run away? Run away. When they've driven us so far that you think you're going to drop, do you wish you were back there at the carpenter shop? With the plane and the lath, the work never drove you mad. You're a maker, a creator, not just somebody's dad. Many of us forget what Joseph would have been going through. And if we're going to go back to the rubric that I talked about earlier about freedom, meaning, and community or fellowship, Joseph's freedom is in complete, like it is being taken over if he is to go through with this, right? His own personal freedom, community would be at stake. People aren't going to want to hang out with me. What are people going to think of me? Are the rumors driving you mad, Joseph? Verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, picking up on verse 18, her husband, Joseph, again, they're not yet married. This is a relational word to make the connection. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this is incredible. Okay, her husband Joseph being a just man. His motivation for not putting Mary to shame is the fact of his character and that he is a just man. He is a righteous man. You know, in a culture where men oftentimes um, put pressure on women, want to blame women, want to be passive, Joseph is an incredible example to us of a man that does not want to shame Mary. And so what he does is he resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, you know, if there's a pendulum of, on the one side, it is, well, Joseph, you shame Mary. And, you know, you make it very public. On the other side, he stays in the relationship. He's taking the middle where he's saying, I will leave her. But it's not for his own sake, friends. It's for Mary's sake. Because that's the kind of man that Joseph is. He doesn't want to shame her. But he also recognizes the situation he is in, puts him in a difficult position. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. 
But as he considered these things, considering the, the, the divorce, considering not wanting to put her to shame, that's the connection. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Once again, it's not just angel, right? It is angel of the Lord, which once again means that God is part of this dream. God is part of sending this angel for this dream for Joseph. This is not a separate event. And an angel appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. You know, for Joseph, as we have continually seen, we saw it last week as well, Joseph cannot get away from his heritage, his lineage. Why? Because Joseph is connected to King David, which if you understand the prophecies of the Old Testament, the promises made to David that through his lineage would come a king. And so what we have here is Joseph, son of David. This will be the king. The prophecy will be fulfilled. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. It's a fascinating point that the angel pinpoints Joseph's, Joseph's motivation of the divorce related to fear. How often does fear prevent us from doing what God calls us to do? It could be fear of the people around us. It could be our own fear of ourselves. But how often does fear hold us back from doing what God is asking us to do? So Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, she hasn't been with another man. So do not fear that reality. She has not been with another man. What is of her is from the Holy Spirit, God himself upon her. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this is a crazy gender reveal, right? In the middle of a dream with an angel, you're going to have a son. Whoa! Cool. Like, you know, I, I don't think they went ahead and did the whole cake thing. Is it blue? Is it pink? Like, here, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. Now, in this culture, sometimes eldest sons were named after the father, other sons at times were named Jesus because Jesus means God saves. And so Israelites or Jews would name their sons Jesus in order to reflect and to remember, to signify the hope that a Messiah would come. But notice the detail that comes after Jesus. Okay, so the gender reveal, you're going to have a son. You shall call him Jesus. For what's his purpose? He will save his people from their sins. Your son, your son that will be named Jesus is truly God who saves. He's not just any baby. And the desire that the angel is expressing to say, you are going to take him as your son and name him. Joseph, I am telling you to adopt this boy as your own. It's an incredible message of adoption here. That Joseph is being instructed, adopt him as your own. Take on the responsibility of naming him and calling him your son. 
Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Matthew zooming out to look at the incredible reality of this prophecy fulfillment. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now here in these couple of verses, we've seen both one, the purpose of what Jesus is going to do. What is Jesus going to do? He is going to save his people from their sins. And here we get another detail of who is this Jesus? Emmanuel. He is God with you. He is God with us. Here's what this means, okay? The great message of Christmas, the great reality of the incarnation is that God came to be with his people. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus, you can be guaranteed and you can know that God is with you. You know, I hear a lot of people pray this. God, we pray that you would be with. If they are followers of Jesus, you don't need to pray like that. God is with them. You instead pray, God, I pray that they would be aware that you are with them today. How different would that be? We live in this thing of like thinking like, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be crazy if like God actually was with them? It is crazy. It's the incarnation that God came to be with us so that we could be near him. That's amazing. So God, please be with. No, be quiet. God is with them. Pray that they would be aware of the fact that he is with them and may that fact change the way that they live. May that be the so among us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. What a just man. What a good man. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He he took his wife. Mary, you're moving in. But notice what we have here. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, this could be the very present reality that, you know, she moves in. They are now in a marital relationship. They begin having sex. It could be understood by others that as she's pregnant, the baby could in fact be Joseph's. But what is Joseph? Joseph is a just man. And so he wants to make sure that there is no shadow of any doubt that this baby will be his. This baby is God with us. Who will save his people from their sins. Which is not just people out there. Joseph is also needing to realize, Joseph, me. This son that I will adopt will also save me. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph does what God asks him to do. Joseph submits. What does this tell us about Joseph? Joseph submits to God's vision for his life. Joseph submits to God's vision for his life. How do we know this? Well, he doesn't submit to his vision for his life. His last vision for himself would be to marry a woman that is pregnant by someone or something else. You know, those of you who are, you know, in in married relationships or those of you that hope to be, think about what you hope like your dream relationship is going to be, you know. Would this be part of it, of what Joseph is dealing with here? 
you know, in the culture in which we live, I mean, again, personal freedoms are highlighted. So the, the cultural realities upon you for going, entering into something like this might be a little bit less than what Joseph is dealing with here. It's significant. It's crazy. But Joseph submits to God's vision for his life. He does not submit to his own vision, which leads to a new version of the reservoirs that we talked about earlier. So what, how does Joseph submit to these? Joseph found freedom. True freedom and staying true to his commitment to Mary and being a present father. That was freedom enough. Joseph found meaning in helping raise God's son, the God-man who would one day save his people from their sins. What a commission in life. And Joseph found community and fellowship by submitting to God's will and reveling in God's favor and the grace that he and Mary had received. But here's the crazy reality is that all of these things are also true for us in Christ. That we can find great freedom, great meaning, limiting our freedom so we can find true meaning and having true community and presence with God because God came to be with us. You know, maybe you've faced it already if you're a follower of Jesus, but God has a very different vision for your life than you probably have for your life. And we live in a culture that is inundating us with the belief and the system that you need to be happy. You need to find pleasure. And anything that comes against that or anything that would prevent you from having that is bad and wrong. It's its own salvation story, essentially, as the cultural moment will say in another podcast episode. That we live in a culture that tells us that our own personal happiness, if you can rediscover your true self, your inner self, then you are truly free. And what some people do with that is they stick Jesus on the end of that. So Jesus wants me to be like the most uh, powerful person in the planet. Or Jesus wants me to, you know, buy all of these things because he wants me to be happy. Friends, God's vision for your life is very different than the vision for your life that you might have for your life. And when you come to know Jesus, when you submit, when you surrender your life to Jesus, you take on the vision that he has for your life rather than the vision that you have for your life. That's why it's dying to self. But the great good news, friends, is that we do not do this alone. Jesus sets for us an example of what this looked like. As Joseph submits to God, he foreshadows the perfect submission of Jesus to his heavenly Father. Therefore, true meaning, commitment, and freedom comes through dying to ourselves as Jesus died. Luke 9 verse 23, Jesus would say this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The crazy Christian good news is that we get life through dying. We get life through dying. Die to your freedom. Die to your subjective rubrics of meaning and die to your vision of community. And Jesus says, take what I give you. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. The burden that you're trying to bear is heavy. Die to that. Take what I want to give you. Why? Because through death comes rebirth as we are adopted and given a new identity by the Father through Jesus, the Son. 
This is in complete opposition to our culture of discovery of self or a discovery of self with an add-on Jesus twist. Die. You and I must die so that we can truly live. A few years ago now, been about five or six years, um, God asked me to quit my job, sell my house, and plant a church. That was not necessarily God's vision for my life. And we went through a lot of like, is this really? Like, what would that mean? Will we have people to come with us? Will we have enough money? I've now got to start asking people to fundraise the money for the church. We then hit some significant setbacks in our planting journey in which we're engaging with a certain individual. And some of you know this story, many of you do not. But he began, he, he turned on us. There was mental health issues and he, he broke the windshield of our vehicle with a rock. He threw a, a big piece of ice through one of our front windows in our house after we just had our son Nixon born to us. And then he threw a rock through our back living room window. So we had two broken windows of our house and then a broken window of our car. And you naturally begin asking the question, like, did we actually do what God called us to do? Because this is ridiculous. And I remember it started, I actually started at that point after these things were happening. He's like, I got to move because this guy's going to find us again. And uh, I'm thankful for a brother who's part of this church community. And we were in DNA together, which is our, our guy groups that we disciple each other. And he challenged me. And he said, he said Matt, he said, I don't imagine that, that Abraham... Uh, he ever imagined that God would ask him to, to sacrifice his son Isaac. God never promised that it would be easy. Ah. I was like, would you please be quiet? Why'd you show up tonight? Why'd I show up tonight? And so we continued. We continued to submit and surrender our life to Jesus, to his vision for our life. And this is the great call of Christian discipleship and apprenticeship to the king. As we say, I need to surrender my life to you. You maybe know Jesus as Savior, but you do not know him as your king. In which you obey and you surrender all of your life to. Why? Because he gave everything for you so you could live. He died so you could take what is not yours for yourself because he gives it to you. It's a gift. You don't earn God's love. You are given it as a gift. So what does this look like practically? Some of you are like, oh, it sounds great up in their clouds. This is what it looks like practically. It's submission to God's vision for your time, for your treasure, and for your talents. Let's go through each in turn. Time, your calendar. You know, a lot of us live in submission to what we want for our calendars. And God says, are you willing to give up your week You're 24-7. Are you ready to reorganize it, to reshape the values so that my kingdom can grow? Will you reshape your calendar, your weekly schedule, or your annual schedule? You know, if you believe hospitality is a great way to demonstrate the gospel to your neighborhood, how often are you having your neighbors into your home? Because that means rearranging your schedule. 
and saying, you know, we're not going to have something on this night. Maybe it's bi-weekly so that we can invite our neighbors into our home. So we can express the love of Christ to them. Maybe it's treasure, money, the things you value. Do these things have control over you or do you have control over them? Your treasure. You know, this Christmas, we're trying to raise $25,000. You know, every year since we began as a church family, we're trying to give away money at Christmas. And some people think we're ridiculous because, I mean, they think it's, it's admirable, but they think it's crazy because it's like, don't you have a budget to meet? And friends, we do have a budget to meet. We're behind in our annual budget. We're about twenty dollars to $25,000 behind, actually, to be very specific. And so, you know, some would say, wouldn't it be just wise of you just to not do the Christmas offering? Like, don't worry about that $25,000 you want to give away. Just cover your own expenses. But we believe that God has called us to be a generous people. And many of us, at this time of year, we're putting stuff on credit cards. Friends, the greatest investment you could ever make is in the kingdom of God. The greatest investment you will ever make in God's kingdom is his kingdom. And so, will we submit and surrender to God's vision over our finances? Will you limit your spending on each other in your family so that you can give to this Christmas offering? Or will the Christmas offering get your leftovers? Do we believe in God's vision for our money? Or how about our talents? Where are you spending your gifts and your abilities? We are, God calls us and he commissions us to go into the world and to use our talents and use our abilities for his name's sake. Are you using your talents and gifts and abilities in this world for ultimately yourself or for God? And he commissions you to go. So I'm not saying come and give all of your time and energy and talents to the church. I'm saying go and do it, but don't do it for your name's sake. Do it for his name's sake. May the world see that your gifts come from him, not from self. So our time, treasure, and talents, but also, as we talk about here quite a bit, we are to submit to God's vision for where you live, where you work, where you learn, and where you play as well. Submitting to God's vision for where you live, work, learn, and play. So here's some questions related to live. What is God's vision for your neighborhood? You know, likely most of us, the majority of money that comes off of our paycheck, where it goes is our mortgage. God cares deeply about where you live or your rent. If he's the owner of all of the resources, ultimately, he cares deeply about where you live. Are you joining God in the renewal of your city? You know, we believe in investing deeply here in this city of Guelph. Our vision is in Guelph as it is in heaven. If you go on our website, the videos that are playing back is not like hot shots of our band. It's hot shots of our city because we want to see our city redeemed. We want to see the gospel take shape in our city and see people of our city understand the great good news of God's kingdom. And so we pray in Guelph as it is in heaven. Maybe it's for where you live. Are you being asked to move, to invest more deeply, maybe in this city or somewhere else that God's calling you to bring his kingdom there? Or how about where you work? Have you thought about what is God's vision for your workplace? Do you consider both where you work and how you work to be an extension of worship for God's glory? Are you being called to change careers or your jobs because you're beginning to recognize that this career job, actually, this is anti-kingdom. Sometimes we don't focus about on that. But is it anti-kingdom? Is this actually working against God's kingdom in the world in some way? Or how about where we learn? What are you learning intentionally and unintentionally? 
You know, friends, we got to begin to realize and remember that the things that you take in on Netflix, that is teaching you things. Like, some people think it's crazy that that Christians focus so much on on teaching our kids. I remember hearing someone say once, "If if you don't brainwash your kids with the gospel, Rihanna will brainwash your kids. You can't see it as like, oh, you know, like, they're not being taught right now. They're being taught. They're being formed. They're being shaped. The things that my two little boys, like we listen to a lot of music. They know the lyrics to many of these songs. Am I helping fill their minds with with good things, with redeeming things? I'm not saying just Christian music because a lot of Christian music isn't that great as far as musical quality is concerned. What I'm saying is, are there redeeming qualities of songs that are challenging their minds to think deeply about the redemption of our world? What are you learning? Are you willing to submit and surrender to say, like, you just are recognizing this, this show that I'm watching, it's teaching me bad things. It's not helping. Then why are you watching it? Are these things congruent with God's vision of a flourishing life? What is filling your mind? And are you submitting to God's desire for learning? And then lastly, Play. You know, what is God's vision for your play? Is God honored in how you play or how you use your time recreationally? Is he honored in how you use your time recreationally? The things you go to for joy, the places that you invest, the things that you do when you don't have to work and your kids aren't running around or when you have no responsibility. Is he honored? Friends, the great good news of the gospel is that this isn't all on you, right? God, Jesus came and lived the life that you not, could not live and died the death that you and I should have died so you can be raised to newness of life. So this submission and surrender is not indicative and connected to your very salvation. Christ has won that for you. He gives it to you as a gift. But this will certainly increase the quality of your life of submission, And as the writers of the New Testament say, your faith without works is dead. So a faith that is coming alive, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a life increasingly surrendering and submitting to life and God's vision for your life. Because it says, no matter whatever he's calling me to, as far as the vision for my life, I'm giving it up because he died and gave everything for me so that I could live. And what we understand about this also is that the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to live lives of submission to the King. You don't do this alone. Not only did Jesus come to be God among us and with us, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, God in you. And as Paul says in the book of Romans, he said, if this Holy Spirit could bring Christ alive, certainly can raise your dead body to life. So many of us, you know, what the Walking Dead used to, be, used to be popular. I know now you're going, oh, you tell me that's redemptive? Probably not. But you remember in the Walking Dead, all these zombies walking around, right? And I'm always thinking gospel connections in these things. But you're thinking about these zombies. What's the great good news? We don't have to walk around as zombies. We don't. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We come alive. So that the world around us can understand the great good news of Christ. Understand that they too have been called to a great purpose, to a life of great meaning, to a life of great community and presence as we die to ourselves to live with Christ. When you and I die, we get true life. 
Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for the example of Joseph. But ultimately, Joseph points to you, Jesus. And so we thank you, Jesus, for coming, for showing us what true submission looks like. That when your father said, okay, it's time. It's time to go to the cross. That you did so. So God, I know that this room, God, is filled with people that you have a calling and a purpose for. Beyond the purpose of just going into all the world and preaching the good news. And we would do well to do that in obedience to your name. But God, you also have a specific calling and a specific purpose for each person in this room. To engage in the places where they live, where they learn, where they work, and where they play. To use their time, their treasures, and their talents for your namesake and not for their own. So God, I pray that we would be a people surrendered and submitted to what you want for our life and not what we want for our lives. God, sometimes those things are similar, but sometimes they are not. So may you please break our hearts and give us clarity to understand what is what and what is not. Jesus, I thank you that you give us life. I thank you that you came to be God with us and that we have the confidence that you are with us. In your name, amen. You know, friends, we have the opportunity now to respond. And so we have people up here that want to pray for you. Guaranteed, there is more than two of you in this room that are usually, there's about two people that come forward at the end of a Sunday who are expressing in a physical way, I have a need and I need prayer. Friends, we are all people who have great need. Some of us will respond by coming forward. Some of us won't. But I would challenge you to come forward, to even kneel here as a way of saying, God, I want to submit and surrender to what you have for my life and not what I have for my life. And maybe you're not sure what God's vision for your life is. Maybe that's your prayer today. God, give me a vision for what you have for my life. Please stand and respond with us in song.